Episodes like this are always kind of an issue for me from the perspective of well, a ruminator or whatever the hell you want to call me. Because I look at this and it's like, um, uh, <laughs> you know, I have very few notes on this episode, very, very little to talk about. Because it's kind of a boring episode, and frankly, the Act 3, oh my god, we need a crisis in the Act 3 to, to fulfill the action requirement thing was a little bit too forced for me. And the plot itself of this mega-virus developed by a Bajoran to be used against the Cardassians, which was never activated, is again kind of on the weak side. But... I don't want to come off too negatively to this episode. It's not a bad episode. It's just an episode I don't have much to talk about. Let me go ahead and give some credit to Michael McGreening uh, before I do anything else, because he's the one who actually wrote this episode. And this is also the first episode which Ira Stephen Bear was involved with. Go figure, right? Obviously, he would be one of the big showrunners when Deep Space Nine would move along. And he's actually, even as we speak, working on what we left behind. Unfortunately, what we've left behind has not come out yet. I was really hoping they would get it out before I started my own DS9 ruminations, so I could watch that and maybe have some few further insight. But anyways, I digress. <clears throat> he did something very smart and very correct with writing the dialogue for this script. It's the exact kind of thing I would have wanted to do. I don't know if I would do it or not, because I don't know if I'm that smart. But it's the exact correct m method. Rather than just writing gibberish, remember, everything you're writing has to be said by a person. And it has to be said in kind of a, the correct tone. So, I mean, if I say da-da-da-da-da-da-da, regardless of the words that come out, even if you swap them around, I'm still going to be saying da-da-da-da-da-da-da, right? And so he sat down and tried to make it so that he had a, a pattern, a rhythm to the dialogue, and he would always write what they were actually saying in parentheses first. He, he did it correctly, he did it smartly, and so definite praise for that. It's probably the one element of the episode's dialogue and script that works really, really well for me. I also uh, <clears throat> hate to speak ill of this episode, but the guest stars in general were kind of weak, most notably the... Uh, the captain, you know, the ship captain, who's like, oh my god, I gotta go. I don't want to get sick. He just comes across as someone who is acting. You know, he's not a bad actor. It's not actively terrible. But he comes across as a guy who is an actor. You know what I mean? And who looks like a person who is acting rather than a character who is portraying. So, we also have... Some really good stuff between Jake and Cisco. I do like a lot of what they do with the two of them and their interactions together. Uh, Avery Brooks himself spoke positively about this, and the, Avery Brooks himself is is a family man and really cares about his kids, obviously. So for him, it was just natural to be like, "Hey, it's gonna be okay." And he just treated, uh, I forget his name, the guy who plays Jake, as if he was his own son. And he does a good job of getting across that closeness. There's some good character moments there. There's also some really good character moments with Cork and Odo. It's funny because this is, I think, now the third time uh, in a row, I believe, that Cork and Odo have kind of been a shining example of the series. It's no wonder that they would do so much with the two later on. So, first of all, there's some good, you know, j just usual good character moments between the two. Uh, Odo, of course, defending Quark, not as ardently as he otherwise would, but... He still defends him. After all, it is still his job to keep order, even if it's against someone who's going after someone he doesn't like. 
Then his interactions with Cork. Cork's there, you know, Dabo, right? And Odo comes in, and there's some surprisingly good characterization between the two of them as, you know, they talk about how he's never learned to gamble. And then, of course, Odo leaves that little tidbit there. By the way, the whole place is undefended. Oh, but if anything's missing, I'm coming after you. I don't think he did that to bait Quark. You know, as kind of a, ha-ha, I'm going to make, I'm going to trap you in this. I think he did it more to taunt him. Because Odo's smart enough to know that Quark is smart enough to not actually bother trying anything like that when he doesn't, when he isn't certain he can get away with it. And even as of this, the fourth episode, we've already kind of established that Quark is actually a lot smarter than he looks. So, he just did it to be like, hey, Quark, there's all this treasure right here, but you can't get it. Bye. <laughs> but then, of course, Quark is immune to the disease. Ferengi immune systems is something that's come up in other places of Star Trek as well. Odo's immune to the disease, and they're the only two who are immune to the disease. So, I mean, establishing that dynamic and then paying off with it, with the two of them effectively being ones to save the station was a nice thing. And as much as I dislike the whole engine, captain, oh god, threat to the station thing, I do like what it did in how it forced Quark and Odo to work together, because there's some great comedic material between the two. Armin Shimmerman himself went out of his way to mention how much he liked doing Quark in this episode, and how much he enjoyed portraying the character and trying to get a handle of the feel of his own, of his own character. Uh, the way he put it was better than I could put it. But he effectively said, I like, I like the idea that Quark, for all of his scruples and problems, is the kind of person who wants to be in the thick of it. He, he's he got that adventurous spirit, and he loves being involved in this kind of a thing. It's like, yeah, let's do it, you know? And given how the rest of the series goes, that seems to pan out. Or, or excuse me, wrong, wrong phrase. That seems to play out. My bad. So, poor O'Brien. Oh, my God. It's so bad that it makes me wonder why it's that bad. No, I'm dead serious on this one. Remember, this is the Federation in about Season 6 of TNG. We are three years after the Borg incursion. We are well into the, to the, effectively the restructuring of the Federation, and Starfleet in particular. We have got not, we have this peace with the Cardassians. We are at peace, or at least stability, with the Romulans. We are strong allies, in fact, stronger allies than we were before with the Klingons. In other words, this is the Federation before things get bad. We're kind of at its height here. Now, that's important to establish because that means the Federation can afford to do things that it otherwise wouldn't. Yes, I know there's no real currency in the Federation, but the Federation still has to deal with finite resources, including people. So, obviously, I'm not speaking of literally money. I'm speaking of having access to tools, resources, personnel, etc. The things that are necessary to get things done. The Federation has a lot of that right now. I mean, this is probably the biggest era of prosperity right now, prior to you-know-what happening in Season 3. So, why, and I mean this sincerely, why hasn't the Federation allocated more resources to Deep Space Nine? They've got it to, to spare right now, as I think I've pretty well established. So, why haven't they? I mean, 
at the bare minimum, send some more freaking workers. It's not like O'Brien is running around saying, oh, no, I don't have enough detritium in order to do this, or I don't have enough made-upium in order to do this. No, it's his expertise, the fixer, the mechanic, the engineer, that is the problem, that he's stretched super thin, and it's actually causing legitimate problems, not just for the station, but for people who use the station. And to be completely blunt, I hate to bring politics into this again, but if you are engendering a situation in which your station is not known as reliable for traders moving through it, Traders are going to stop moving through it. And encouraging increased trade is something both the Federation and the Bajorans want. So why aren't they allocating more engineers to this? Real question. Unfortunately, and I'm sure some of you could come up with an answer. Please, by all means, feel free to come up with an answer. But unfortunately, I think in this case, the answer is just bad writing. Um... I think this is a case where they wanted to have O'Brien be the guy completely stretched to the gills, barely able to keep up. So they made it that way, even if it doesn't quite make sense from a setting perspective. Now, I'm not saying it can't be explained away. There's always a way you can explain away problems like this. But I don't think any attempt was made to explain this away, in character or out. I think this was just, we want to show O'Brien is, is, is way over-demanded right now, so we do it. And, I mean, at least they do something good with it. Colmini, as ever, is amazing and manages to come across as just the right brand of disgruntled, while at the same time not not going over the limit. You know, you know what I mean, right? Like, too much disgruntled is just going to be aggravating or irritating or isn't really going to have the same panache to it. But he still manages to maintain his charisma while still being like, Oh, God, go fix this, Chief. Go do this, Chief. You know. Which, uh... I have to admit, I relate to a great deal, because I used to work in IT as a network engineer, specifically. Some of you may remember you know, the days in the cube farm. Um, I don't know how many of you out there have done IT work before, but I imagine a lot of you know exactly what O'Brien feels like being, hey, come over to this, and hey, come over to this, and hey, come over to this. I was actually going to write, in fact, I have a note here that I started to cross out here. I was going to write down a note about how unappreciated he is. Except it's actually interesting that he is, in fact, appreciated at multiple times in the episode. Most notably by Cisco, he makes it goes out of us to say thank you, thank you know, and really try to emphasize that O'Brien is a key and critical resource, which is absolutely true. He's pretty much single-handedly keeping the station together. So then we get to the broken replicators and, of course, the sabotage, which was done by the incredibly genius Bajorans who are able to make a virus that can outsport Bashir. This is the first time that the old Bashir and the new Bashir don't link up. Because I can't imagine any reason why super genius Bashir would not be able to figure out some way around this virus. Now, if we wanted to be absolutely fair, we could point out the fact that he was close to a, a cure. As the, as the, the doctor, the guest star doctor uh, comments on when he comes in, he's like, oh yeah, you know, he's, he was already on his way to a cure. So, eh. but at the same time, with this kind of danger and this level of severity, especially when the moment O'Brien started showing signs of this is going to affect his system to the point of death, I can't imagine that super genius Bashir would then not try to go full tilt with the cure. So, for the first time, you know, to show that I am fair, of course, for the first time, the two visions of Bashir do not link up. So... This all starts with the replica. I don't have anything else, by the way, I'm sorry, to say about the, the disease. It's this uh, global aphasia thing that infects the whole station. 
I like what they did with the writing. I already mentioned that, the gibberish. But I remember distinctly when I was watching this as a kid. Oh, I shouldn't say kid. I was a teenager at this point. So when I was watching this as a kid, <laughs> I remember looking at this and thinking, why are they relying on linguistic communication? Like, that was one of the first things that occurred to me. Now, obviously, now, as, a, as an adult, I can look back and say, why the hell are they relying on linguistic communication? Because I've actually had experiences in my real life where I've had to communicate with someone who either doesn't speak my language or doesn't speak at all and have succeeded at doing so. I once communicated with a man who couldn't hear and couldn't speak, right? Dumb and deaf. And I successfully communicated with that guy. That's only happened once in my life. But I remember that encounter very distinctly. My point is there are ways to communicate that don't involve language. And that's with someone who can't speak at all. Even Chakotay over in Voyager in uh, the episode Basics understood the concept of using body language and tone, right? Between these two things, we can use these things to communicate regardless of the words coming out of our mouth. Even if I was just to go, blah, 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 blah. You can still infer some of my meaning from my tone and from my body language. Never mind simple association. You know, blah, 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 blah. There, I have conveyed to you that that thing over there I want brought to me. Done. It's not that hard. I'm sorry, it isn't. And it bothered me that these Starfleet personnel had no idea how to communicate. And, like, at first, early on, okay, that makes sense. You know, they don't know what they're dealing with. When O'Brien gets messed up and he has to be taken down, okay, I get that. But... I'd say after the first few cases, especially when they see it happen to Dax right in front of them, I'd think they would have started to work out what's going on and be and be more capable of communicating, even after you cross over, if you will, even after you become infected, or I should say when your symptoms manifest, because you know your symptoms have vanished. You understand that you can't communicate properly. It actually irritated me. There's a scene where Jake is like, hey, I need... Jake goes over and says, hey, something's wrong with O'Brien. Now, that's not what he says. He says, blah, 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 you know, but, but that's what he's trying to communicate. Why is he even speaking? That actually irritated me. He should have gone over and, and said, hmm, hmm, you know, grab hand, let's go, put hand on forehead. And then when she gets over, Dax says, blah, 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 blah. And so I can at least see Jake not really thinking this through, but Dax, who's like, blah, 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 blah. And, and then she's like, oh, what? No, okay, look. Use your heads, guys. It's not that hard. It, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't know why this bothers me so much. Maybe it's just because it bothered me even as a kid. But I would think that for a people who are accustomed to interacting with new species and new cultures, that communication would be one of those fundamental things they would have learned. In fact, I, I really hate to pull this up, but the TNG episode, you know the one I'm talking about, right? Picard and Darmok, right? That whole episode was about that. Now, granted... I haven't seen that episode in a while. But one of the things I remember most distinctly is that Picard, while early on was just as you know stupid as I'm mentioning Dax, he learned and he grew and he understood and he started to actually form a degree of communication to the point where he could actually convey what happened on the planet to the other ship. 
But these people are like, hey, blah, 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 blah. I'm just going to babble at you, and then that'll make it make sense, right? Sorry. I don't know why it bothers me so much. I apologize. A couple other notes here really quick. So they've got these broken re replicators. Now, I've always loved replicators as a technology. I really have. I admit I kind of have my own headcanon for how replicators work, because how replicators work is actually kind of inconsistent. Several of the writers of Star Trek have gone on record saying that, you know, the replicators are a thing that they hate that it was added to Star Trek. We still haven't even hit the episode over on TNG when they first actually start discussing replicators. But the problem was we can make anything, so, you know, why is this a problem? Why is there any threat here? Well, I've always thought that the replicators are semi-limited in the way they function, and I admit a lot of that comes from Deep Space Nine, which approaches the replicators pretty much exactly in that manner. I don't want to get too much into that right now. All I want to say is that if you're talking about a, a device that takes matter and rearranges it into another substance at a, at a base level, basically restructuring atoms at this point, I don't think I'd want to eat or drink anything coming out of a broken replicator. Because that just sounds terrible to me. Bleh. You know? <laughs> and of course, you know, we have the, the terrible soup, so I suppose that goes along with that. What I find strange is that Quark says, oh yeah, my brother Rom fixed it. Now, if you don't understand why I find that strange, I don't know if Rom had that kind of savvy at this point. But maybe he did? I mean, remember, Rom is the kind of person who probably could actually fix the replicators. So, this is one of those weird things that makes sense from both perspectives, but only if you think about it for a minute. Because, obviously, Quark doesn't believe Rom has any capacity. There's even a line further on in Star Trek where Rom says to Quark, I was always this good at stuff, brother. You just never noticed. So the idea that Quark legitimately believes Rom's an idiot and, and you know, Odo believes Rom's an idiot, okay, I can go with that. And the idea that Rom goes along with that because he's being bullied into the position, I can go with that as well. But it also makes sense at the time where they've portrayed Rom in one episode, in one tiny bit role where he had two sequences, one with uh, Keiko and one with Nog in the previous episode. So it makes sense in that perspective of the guy who's just a typical Ferengi who couldn't fix a bent straw, as Odo says. Uh, let's see. I don't have much else to talk about. Like I said, the Jake and Sisko stuff was good. The Odo and Quark stuff was good. There's a throwaway line that Jake says about, oh, I was at Nog's. I kind of like that. Little stuff like that is part of the flavor of Deep Space Nine. There will be much better examples in the future. But even in this, a relatively unassuming and generally disinteresting episode, to me, uh, it's not bad. Please don't put words into my mouth. It's just kind of there. You know, it's average. But uh, even in a fairly average episode, they bother to sprinkle flavoring here and there to help build out the setting, the backstory. That's that whole consequence thing all over again. We see that Jake and Nog are still kind of hanging out. And that will be a thing that develops in the future. No need to call attention to it. It's not a big deal. It's just something in the background. And I love it when a recurring fictional work, be it a game or shows or movies, has little background flavor like that that helps make me feel like it's more of an actual place rather than a set on a TV show. You know what I mean? I, I bet a lot of you know exactly what I mean by that. Um, so, yeah, that's it. That's all I've got. I mean, I do love uh, Kira's tactic, by the way. 
it's one of the those instances where they use the technology rather intelligently. The moment she's like, I'm going to go get this guy, I promise I won't step foot on the planet. The moment she says that, I'm like, well, I know exactly what she's going to do. She's going to beam him up to the runabout, and he'll then be infected, so it'll be his problem, and she'll have to help her. And what she's doing is probably illegal and pretty morally questionable. I mean, obviously she's doing it because she's the hero and she's doing the right thing, but I do like how it's kind of left in the background there that she is kidnapping someone against his will and blackmailing him in order to try and coerce him to help her. And I like that because it adds some moral ambiguity to the situation. It's never discussed on screen. It's just kind of there in the background. Again, I like that. And, uh, I, I, of course, it was all a gamble, too. And that's really the reason I like it so much, because it helps to show how desperate Kira has become. That she's willing to do something like this to her own kind. You know, remember, she's already had this Bajoran loyalty thing come up. In order, on the chance that he might be able to help her. Now, fortunately, this gamble paid off. Can you imagine if he didn't? No. Can you imagine if he really couldn't help with this situation? Wouldn't that be terrible? She would have basically just killed an innocent man for no reason. But I firmly believe that Kira would do those actions because she was desperate. Kira's that kind of character, in my opinion, who, when things are, when the chips are down, she is willing to go way above and beyond what most other people are. Way past moral ambiguity into actual moral darkness, if need be. If that is what's necessary to make things happen. And I love that about her character because she's an idealist. And it's nice to see someone who hates that kind of thing, but will accept doing it if she has to. But that's all I got. I do hope you've enjoyed and I will be seeing you guys next week with the continuation of Deep Space Nine.